This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. If you're a regular listener here, you know we often talk about the importance of networking. And at times, our guests mention the value of LinkedIn as a vital networking tool. Well, today we're focusing on some of the deeper aspects of connecting with other people. And our guest is from LinkedIn. His name is Scott Shute, and not long ago, he was LinkedIn's Vice President of Global Customer Operations. Then he made a shift, and today, Scott is the company's Head of Mindfulness and Compassion. Scott will share insights from his new book, The Full Body Yes. It's about mindfulness, it's about compassion, and it's about ways that you can create a more meaningful work life. Scott, it is so great to have a chance to talk with you, and your story and your insights are really intriguing to me. You've been a leader at LinkedIn for quite a while, and you had a really uh, big job as the vice president of global customer operations, but, but then you made a shift, and as I understand it, you are now LinkedIn's head of mindfulness and compassion programs. So... That's quite a shift. I would love to hear what that means, what you do, and how did the shift occur? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, it's uh, it's pretty unique, right? I have a pretty unique job. And and here's how it came about. You know, I've had this career leading operations functions, customer service functions. And at the same time, you know, I'm kind of a dual agent. I've I've had a practice, a meditation practice since I was 13. I've been teaching since I was in college. And I got to LinkedIn and a couple of years, I've been here for eight years now. And a couple of years in, I realized, wow, what an amazing place. What an open place. You know, our CEO at the time, Jeff Wiener, was at company all hands talking about meditation practice and talking about using headspace and later talking about compassion and leadership. And I thought maybe this is a place where I can finally bring this piece of me to work because I'd been covering, you know, I, it's not something I talk about my, my personal practice. So about six years ago, I'd gotten up the courage to lead a single meditation session after agreeing with my friend who runs our wellness group, I said I would do it. And then I went back to my desk and did, you know, nothing about it for three, three months because I was terrified. I led this first session and there was one person there. <laughs> and oh I'm sure, my. yeah, I'm sure he was just as terrified as I was. I never saw him again. And then, you know, the next week there were three, and then there were five, and then it became a regular thing. I started um, being invited to things. You know, our our marketing team would have an offsite and do breakout sessions. They're like, Scott, can you come do your thing? You know, with our group. So here I am leading practices with eighty people. Or the CFO would hold a summit and I'd kick things off with a meditation practice with 400 finance people. And so pretty soon it just became, I became kind of known as the meditation exec. And that's what I wanted, right? I wanted my whole life to be the person I was at work. And then for me, the tipping point was um, a few years later, 
about three years ago, our CEO, Jeff, was giving the commencement address at Wharton. And, you know, at a commencement address, you get your one big piece of advice. He was saying, hey, look, if you're going to be successful in life, if you're going to be successful at work, be compassionate. And I thought, oh, wow, it's time. It's time for me to kind of you know, make this a bigger part of who I am in the real world as a career. But it's also time for LinkedIn to invest in this. Because if we say to 16,000 employees that compassion is the most important thing and then send them back to their desks, what does that mean? And so I made a pitch to Jeff and to our head of HR and with their tremendous support, you know, essentially created this role with a blank sheet of paper. Um, and so here I am, head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. Well, what does compassion mean at LinkedIn? I, it's, it's a word I use a lot in talking with clients and I use it inside my own head, but I don't always have the same meaning. What does it <laughs> sure. mean at LinkedIn? Well, my definition is this, and there's a bunch of definitions that work also, but I like it because I get to teach a model around it. I think it's building the capacity for three things. The first is to have an awareness of others. The second is to have a mindset of wishing the best for them. And the third is then to have the courage to take action. And then, you know, we can talk about how we operationalize it, but that's how we define it. Well, how do you um, operationalize it? How do you make it uh, part of the culture? Sure. And and first, let me preface this by saying that I, I'm not the one who created LinkedIn as a compassionate place. It's a compassionate place. And part of my job is to be like an investigative reporter to understand how did we get here and how do we break this down and how can we help ourselves and others you know, go further. But at the, the simple thing is anytime we're moving from me to we, right, just thinking about ourselves to thinking about the whole, I think it has compassion at the roots. So here are three examples in the workplace. So our head of sales will stand in front of you know, 6,000 salespeople at sales kickoff and say he'll say something like, look, our job as salespeople is to provide long-term value. So don't sell something at the end of the quarter that our customers don't need just so you can hit your quota. <laughs> now, as an ex, you know, when I was 25 years old, I was a salesperson and for sure that's not how I was taught. Or in the product world, you know, we have um, every week we have five or six or eight product meetings where a product manager sharing what their version of the product is going to do in the next revision, kind of like Shark Tank without the attitude. And if a product manager comes in and says, hey, let me tell you about this new revision. You know, I think we can get 13% more engagement or 13% more clicks by doing blah, blah, blah. The first question is always, okay, but what's the member experience like? You know, and if the answer is, well, did, did I mention that we're 13% more clicks? Like the meeting just stops. And yeah. then it becomes an object lesson on our value about members first. Those are a couple of the ways that it happens. Well, now, speaking of members and, and looking at, at um, what you're doing from a member's perspective, I will first say that we talk about networking a lot on Jazz about mm -hmm. work. It's so important to any kind of um, career path. And I think um, connecting with other people is so much of what life is all about. So I tend to bring it up a bit. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about networking as um, a career tactic, as a way to help a job search or something, LinkedIn always comes up. You have mm -hmm. changed the culture of professional networking, I think, around the world. So here, here's a question. Sure. If we are encouraging people 
by pointing out the power of LinkedIn's tools, we're encouraging them to use LinkedIn. How do we bring in the idea that networking should also be compassionate and LinkedIn Uh, can help you reach people in a compassionate way? Sure. Well, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people approach networking as a chore, (laughs) as a starter, or some people who think they're really good at it, just they're just trying to get as many people in their network as possible. But you, each of us knows from our own experience, the people that are closest to us are the people where there's a mutual respect, where there's a mutual value add. And so networking, if we're just out trying to collect business cards and you get yourself home and you have a desk full of business cards, who cares? But if you have you know, a group of people that you've added value to and they've added value back to you and you feel comfortable introducing them to a friend or you feel comfortable if they introduce you to a friend, then you've got something really valuable. So I I go back to treat your networking on LinkedIn or your networking anywhere, just like you're building your friend group. You know, be authentic, be your real self, be human, be all parts of yourself. But then, you know, make it make it real. Only connect with people that, you know, you want to connect with and not feel like you should because somebody's asking you to. So I noticed that um, unlike some platforms, if you look at the comments that people make on other people's posts and articles and the responses to questions, there is a culture of helpfulness and kindness, I think, that at least in the kinds of things that I read often comes through. Is that something that you've uh, consciously um, encouraged as part of your service culture? I think there's a couple pieces. I mean, one is just who we are and where we operate. You know, we're dealing with the world's professionals and it's, you know, I think most people have the common sense not to be too much of a jerk since everybody knows exactly who you are and who you work for. <laughs> right. Yes. And two is that, yes, we're trying to build the product in a way that we're, that we're, the messaging is that we're all in this together, you know, and we're trying to put much more of a human face on the big, the big idea of business. One of the ways to, to be human, I think, uh, you captured uh, with your term micro compassions. I hadn't heard that term before. I, I think it really <laughs> is a, um, a nice way to suggest you could start a little bit at a time. So tell me about what you mean by micro compassions. Sure. I was thinking about microaggressions, right? And what the opposite might be. A micro compassion and this idea that some people think compassion is this big lofty idea and how hard it is. No, compassion can be super simple, super easy, micro compassion. So as an example, you're standing in line at the grocery store, just smile at someone, literally just look at them and smile. Or start up a little conversation. Um, If you're at work, whether you're on a a video call or where you see them in person, just notice something about them. It's kind of like remember something about their lives and ask about that in in a conscious effort, you know, to build connection or to light them up. Because to the other person, it's like, oh, wow, they, they remembered that about me. Like, hey, Colin, have you been surfing lately? Or Judy, how's your, you know, whatever. (laughs) whatever going on in your life, right? These are just the simple things that help us build those connections. And, And again, it's this moving from me to we. I'm not just thinking about myself and what's in it for me. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about us as people. So 
part of it is showing that you're present in the conversations you have with people, even if they're virtual conversation, conversations, you're, you're noticing them, you're seeing them, you're listening to them. That's kindness, but it also forges connections if you can show That's that right. you're present. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what we're looking for as humans is connection. And I think as one of the deepest needs we have is the need to be seen and heard and acknowledged. Uh, and so one of the biggest things we can do as, as people just in compassion is to listen, you know, instead of saying, oh, hey, how are you? Well, when you say that, you're just going to get the, oh, I'm fine, but go one click deeper. Like if you really want to know, it's like, hey, how are you? Like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how are you today? And then really listen, really listen to what the other person's saying. And that's, so, that's one of the most powerful things we can do. So mindfulness is also in your title, which is an unusual corporate title. Um, <laughs> yes. So I, I think if, as a guru of mindfulness, you know about being fully present. And in your book, you had a line that I liked. When we're mm. fully present, our true self gets to play. So uh, elaborate, if you would. What do you mean by fully present? And what's our tr our true self? And how does it get to play? Sure. Great questions. Well, fully present is when we're we're not, our minds are not in the past. They're not in the future. We're really, truly here in this moment. And we're, we're kind of alive. It's like our antennas, antennas are up listening for the signals around us. And I think, you know, this is just my own kind of personal mental model for how we work. And so this is just me speaking. But I think that we are more than our bodies, more than our minds, more than our emotions. There's this deeper part of us, which I'll call the true self. People have different words they put on it depending on their, um, their worldview of how things work. But when we can be really present and allow our bodies to settle down, our minds to settle down, our emotions to settle down, that's the place where this true self um, comes alive because it's there all the time. It just gets drowned out by the noise of all the other things. So mindfulness is uh, when you're really focused on what's happening in front of you and you're not making judgments, mm. but it's easier said um, than done sometimes. That's for sure. What do you do as the mindfulness guru in your organization, what do you do to help people um, develop a, a mindfulness practice or a, um, a comfort with sure. seeking mindfulness? Sure. Well, there's lots of things that we offer. I'll, I'll share some of the things we do programmatically. I mean, one is I officially report into learning and development. So I'm building workshops. You know, I'm doing lots of workshops on things like building resilience. And as you might imagine during COVID times, uh, the demand for a course like Building Resilience has skyrocketed. Uh, and in that one, we're talking about mindset you know, and shifting away from pessimism to optimism or towards a growth mindset. And then specifically, you know, we're doing things specifically around mental wellness and specifically around mindfulness. So, you know, we have around the world something like 30, 40, 50 um, meditation sessions, weekly meditation sessions every week. We have drop-in community sessions um, from our sponsors or our partners at Wisdom Labs called Wise at Work, where, and this has really helped me scale. So if I have a volunteer in Omaha or Bangalore or Toronto or wherever, all they need to do is get people in the room. And we have, you know, five to eight minutes of recorded talk, five to eight minutes of a practice, and then discussion. 
so they can connect with each other. And because we're really trying to build those connections. We also give everybody free access to a meditation app, uh, also called Wise at Work. And it's a really good one. It includes more than just meditation, but specific scenario-based things like, hey, I'm about to go into this meeting that might be stressful, or I'm about to get feedback or give feedback. What do I do? So those are really good. And once a year, we do a 30-day challenge where over the course of usually October, the challenge is use the app you know, at least 20 times and we'll give you a free t-shirt, you know, and ne never underestimate the power of a free t-shirt or yes. a free hoodie. Yes, people, people love their swag. It's really fun to have. Exactly. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Masters in Public Administration or environmental studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. For people who haven't uh, thought about mindfulness very much or practiced um, meditation, mm -hmm. I know there are lots of different ways to do it, but one of the things about meditation is that um, even if you just do a little bit, it changes your mindset throughout the day, potentially, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, like, like exercise, you can think of it like mental exercise as the corollary to physical exercise. Of course, long term, you're going to be in much better health if you physically exercise, you know, whatever, every other day for half an hour. Same thing with meditation. But even if you do a little thing, Right. So I, in the morning, I, you know, I try to do some push-ups every morning. And even if I just do one set of push-ups, that kind of sets the tone for the day. And it starts to change how we identify with ourselves. It's like, after that, I am a person who does push-ups, you know, or I'm a person who does physical exercise. In the same way, if we just take a break, you know, maybe as an example, you could set your alarm for uh, every hour or just once a day. And in that, when the alarm goes off, just take like three really deep breaths and just stop. That can be as simple as it is. And then your identity starts to shift. I am someone who meditates. And if you want to go further, you go further. So part of what you're doing is helping the team, whether it's your immediate team or this big worldwide team of um, mm -hmm. employees or your members and partners you're helping the team to get a sense that they can change things from the inside out. And then that changes all the interactions, right? That's right. That's right. When we ourselves um, get into a place where we are at our best or even moving towards our best, because let's face it, sometimes things are hard. It changes everything around us. You know, if I, I imagine uh, there was this one time where I was headed to my son's baseball practice. And, you know, I had a big job. I was leaving in the middle of the day because I had to go get the field right. And I found myself in the car just complaining to myself, 
just griping about all the things I had to do. I had to go to baseball practice and I had to do this and I had to do this. And I stopped myself and I'm like, wait a minute. What if I switch this around? Like what else is true in my life? Well, what else is true is I love baseball. It's, it's my favorite sport as a kid. I love my son. I love being a coach. And so I imagined kind of two scenarios. One is what if I spent the next 40 minutes in the car completely griping, completely complaining to myself? Imagine the type of experience that my kids, my, my team is going to have with me as a coach. I'm going to get out of the car grumpy. I'm going to shout at them. I'm going to be impatient. Or imagine I spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes in the car thinking about all the ways I'm grateful I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to serve my community. I'm grateful to be with my son. I'm grateful that I work for a company that allows me to leave in the middle of the afternoon to take care of my family. And then imagine me getting out of the car at, that, at the end of that and the experience that my boys are going to have with me then as me as a coach. That's every moment. This choice between A or B, between you know pessimism or optimism, is the choice we make in every moment of our lives, and it affects everybody around us. And it's not necessarily changing the outside circumstances. Those still exist. But what changes is how we interpret that. And that changes everything. So another line in your book that I liked, um, and I, I'm just reminded of it now with what you're saying, is that every minute of the day we're creating. Mm. We're kind of making up our reality. Is that what you're describing that we could, our reality could be that we're bored and unhappy and frustrated, and don't want to be here, or that That's right. we're creating an opportunity. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, every moment of every day, we have a choice, right? And there's been lots of research on happiness. And what we find is that it's not necessarily the external things that happen to us, which drives our happiness. It's how we react to them or how we respond to them or how we interpret those things in our mind. So happiness is an inside job. And the good news is that no matter where you are on the scale of happiness, it's changeable. You know, our brains are plastic. All of these things, these neural pathways about how we interpret the world are changeable. And these changes happen through the inner work that we're talking about. Well, that inner work, um, you summarized at the end of the book uh, really quickly. You said when you're talking about changing yourself, it really comes down to, to four concepts. Mm. Can you walk us through those four concepts and how they can help you create a sure. different kind of relationship with your work? Absolutely. Well, the first one is to know yourself, right? And, and to really, it's, it's to know your own story. Like every, each one of us has a story that only we can tell. And when we really know our own story, when we know why we do things, why we choose things, then we have awareness because awareness gives us choice. Uh, once we really know ourselves, then it's to really love ourselves, right? Sometimes compassion starts with self-compassion. So there's this idea that, you know, we start by loving ourselves, meaning accepting every part of us, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever, in a non-judgmental way. And this is who I am and I love me. Um, also in that love yourself category is this, this recognition that I'm more than my thoughts. I'm more than my emotions. I'm more than my body. And how can I tune into that deeper part of myself? And then the third step, and this is the hard one, is master yourself, right? This is where we realize that we 
are in charge of our own destiny. We are in charge of our own happiness. So we have no one to look at but ourselves in the mirror. Um, and then it's the very hard work of taking that responsibility to take the steps uh, to choose our own happiness. And then the th fourth part is really to do those three things for someone else. We call this compassionate action, meaning I, if I know myself and then I know others, if I love myself, I learn to love others. And if I have the courage to take action for myself, then I have the courage to take action for others. So it's the same three steps for someone else. Well, the hard part you said is mastering yourself, but I think maybe for a lot of people, the hard part starts with loving yourself. It's all very <laughs> yes. well to say, if I'm having a bad day, I want to love myself. But yeah. are there techniques like um, that, that you help people learn, like talking back to that voice in your head? Sure. Or what, sure. what are suggestions? If, if a person, maybe one of our listeners is having a bad day, and they don't love themselves at all. And they're saying, how can I love myself when you know, I'm so terrible? How, yeah, how do you yeah, start yeah, yeah, loving yeah. yourself? Where do you begin? This can be super hard for some of us. I'll share two things. So one is the recognition that our inner talk track is almost all negative, right? We've evolved this way. Not that we're hardwired. I'm going to say we're programmed this way. You know, we've been, we've been, we've evolved in a way that our brains recognize danger first. And that's kept us alive, but it doesn't keep us happy. And so what happens is our inner talk track is very negative. Well, once we recognize that and we start to hear that, that negative inner talk track, which Ariane Huffington calls the obnoxious roommate, which I love that yes. definition. Um, then we can ask, okay, what else is true? I hear you, obnoxious roommate, but what else is true? And what else is true is there's a lots of good stuff going on in everybody's life. It could even be simple things that you, you don't admit. Like, I, I'm breathing right now. I am upright. I'm above ground. Like, that's a good start. Right? And you just start listing all the things that are good, which are also true. And then for me, the really powerful one is, and what I teach and suggest for people, I learned this from my friend Shauna Shapiro, is you put your hand on your heart. And when you're in the morning or whenever, when you're doing your brushing your teeth or makeup or shaving or hair or whatever, you look at yourself really deeply in the eyes and you say your name followed by, I love you. So I would say, Scott, I love you. And look, in the beginning, yes, you might have, some of you are thinking, okay, I can't do that. You can. Yes, in the beginning, it's a little weird. But over time, you can feel your own judgments start to fade away. And if you can get to this point where you can look yourself in the eyes and you really meet it and with the hand on the heart, um, this goes a long ways towards, towards loving ourselves. So you can use that same approach with other people and sometimes it's easier. I, I think one thing that I sometimes do, like I, I'm in a bus and I look out the window and I see somebody fall down in the snow and I wish mm -hmm. I could like help them up. I can't do it. So I, I just imagine my, from my heart, maybe I touch my heart, and I imagine like warmth going from me yeah. to wherever they are. That's um, right. You can practice that on other people. I don't know how it works, but somehow it makes you feel better, even if it doesn't hit the person who just fell on the snow, right? Oh, that yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 there's something in the connection of your heart to other people that actually encourages connection 
That's right. There's some really interesting, if we could talk about that for a second, I, I'm, I really enjoy systems theory. My, my original degree yeah. was in engineering. Um, so excuse me for this for a second. But the idea of a system is that, think of me as a system, that's one circle, and you, Beverly, as a system, that's another circle. But when we have a relationship, we those two circles are intertwined, like a kind of like an infinity sign or a peanut or something mm -hmm. like that. Now, the law of system says that you can't change the subsystem without affecting the system. So in other words, if I change myself, then by nature, I have changed the system that exists between the two of us. So think about it like this. You're, you're in the car. Maybe you've ever had this experience. Like you're in the car and you're having an argument with someone who's not there. Has this ever happened to you? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I find myself there. You're having this argument with someone who's not there. It's all in your head, right? Yes. Well, what's happening is I'm changing my subsystem. I'm creating more anger and frustration in the subsystem. So I shouldn't be surprised that the next time I'm with that person physically, I'm standing in front of them, I shouldn't be surprised if things are worse because I've just spent all this time arguing with them and changing me. Now, on the other side of things, what if I spend all that time thinking, you know, um, Beverly, may you be happy. You know, may you be healthy. I wish the best for you. I wish you to be happy. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm changing me. I'm changing how I think about the situation. I'm changing the subsystem. And so I shouldn't be surprised that the next time I'm with you, like things are so much better. So we can use this actively in situations where we're struggling with someone. Well, that brings us back to one of our favorite topics, networking. So now <laughs> people are starting, we're coming out of our shells, we're coming out of our houses, we're going to actually see real life people again. And Yay. even people who are kind of extroverted and social are feeling anxiety as we're starting to venture out. So it occurs to me that um, one of the things that you can do if we're going up off to our party or our office or wherever we're going, and we're not really happy to be there, if we're telling ourselves, oh, I don't like it, these people are boring or whatever, if we can go in and be saying to people in our heads, it's so nice to see you, I wish you well, I hope you're well, that we can change the networking experience, right? That is for sure. And because what we're doing is we're changing ourselves. And I think that we, you know, kind of back to this, we're creating all the time. I think, you know, like attracts like. So all of a sudden, if, we, if we're sitting on the couch with our drink and our phone, you know, and everybody else is standing up, milling around, who wants to go talk to that person, right? Who wants to go network with that grouchy person who's absorbed in their phone? But if somebody's smiling and they're thinking, this is great, or they're thinking about the possibilities, then we're creating an energy that, you know, people want to go be with, and then good things happen. So we are totally creating our own realities every second. Well, the full title of your book is The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out. And so that's an example of changing things from the inside out, changing our encounters at work from our insides. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a lovely book. It's enjoyable. You were very authentic and told lots of true stories about yourself. Um, and so there, there are lessons um, and also good reading in there. But before we, um, we have to leave here, do you have any other kind of thoughts for people who might be feeling a little lost or 
just not quite sure about what's happening in the future, how, how can we start moving more toward hope and mm. power and focus if, if we just want to do something today? Sure. I think for me, it's a, it's a shift in mental model from life is happening to me, in which I feel like a victim, to what if, and who knows if you believe in the world works this way, but what if I responded to life as if life were happening for me? What if every one of these situations, even the ones I don't like at all, what if it was put there lovingly as a gift? And what if it was put there by me? How would I respond to it? And, the, and another one is to ask, what else is true? There's so much goodness in our lives, you know, for everything that's hard, there's a celebration. And so it's to look to those celebrations to give us the strength to also deal with the things that are hard. And I think using a journal or a piece of scrap paper on your desk, if that's what you have, to just kind of write some of that down a little bit, that can sometimes help. Just make a few notes about what else is good and mm -hmm. um, kind of what we're grateful for today can be helpful. Well, Scott, I'm grateful for you being here today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to be uh, watching you, of course, on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, <laughs> I, I wish you well with your book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And for everyone who's listening, please go out there and be an ambassador for compassion today. Today, we've been talking with Scott Shute about changing your work life by changing yourself. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's tip is that sometimes we're unhappy because we're too tangled up in our own needs and accomplishments. But when we shift our focus to the needs of other people, we start to feel more connected and then we become happier. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show, we'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating. Or perhaps share us on your social... Oh, let me do that over again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show, we'd love it if you give us a five-star rating. Or perhaps you could share it on social media. 